Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Krause. So today we have a guest on the podcast that, um, if you've been listening carefully to the other interviews, has actually been um, mentioned at least two, maybe more times by other guests. Uh, Hillel Wayne is best known for his work trying to explain uh, and promote TLA Plus to a broader audience of more practical engineers, people who might not think that what we call, quote, formal methods would apply to, you know, building products, building web applications, uh, building technologies for the startup they work for. If you aren't familiar with the term formal methods, this is, I think, a really great podcast to get you get your foot in the door. Um, we start by contextualizing what formal methods are. We break up the, the field into four quadrants and we, and we go kind of quadrant by quadrant and, and um, think about what each of the different uh, techniques is, is used for and, and the practicality of it. Um, it's, it's, it, well, I, I think I might be overselling how ordered this conversation is. We, we, we kind of, Hillel will explain something and I'll, I'll think I understand it. And then maybe 10 minutes later, I'll be like, wait a second. How is that different from that other thing we were talking about? And he'll, 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 he kind of has to backtrack and, and uh, clarify for me. But I, th I think um, you'll be able to follow. And I think um, you'll get a, a greater sense for this small but um, active community of research that um, has a lot to offer to uh, the future of, of what software engineering could look like. So um, before I bring you Hillel, uh, a quick message from our sponsor, Replit. Replit is an online REPL for over 30 languages. It started out as a code playground, but now it scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They're a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers. They're looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more accessible and enjoyable. So email jobs at Replit if you're interested in learning more. And without any further ado, I bring you Hillel Wayne. Welcome, hello. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's really great to have you. I'm excited for this conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I originally heard of you as the TLA plus guy. Potentially, um, I think I may have heard of you for the first time with uh, via another interview or two on this podcast. I think we have a few mutual friends in common. Yeah, um, I think um, it, was, it was a couple people. I think it was Kevin and I think Jem James Koppel both. I think they both they were both interviewed by you, and they're sort of like we were sort of in the same circle. So I imagine it's one of those two. Yeah, and I think it may have actually been both of them. Okay, yeah, you I'm really popular. Have to talk to yeah, I, th I think you are. You are <laughs> at, le at least with um, yeah, the people I, I talk to. Mm -hmm. You have the illusion of popularity given who I talk to. So, um, given that I know you as this the TLA plus guy, I'd be curious to hear about your um, origin stories as as this TLA plus superhero. Were you um, originally bitten by a radioactive Leslie Lamport, or did it happen some other way? Uh, God, you, you sort of put me on the spot there, because now I've got to think of like a really clever comeback to that, but I can't, so. <laughs> uh, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't really anything that interesting. Um, I was doing some work at a web development company and ran into like a really complicated distributed systems problem with their product, and what happened is I was looking for ways to make it a little bit more manageable. I stumbled on TLA Plus and it worked out really well in my favor. And I'm like, hey, this is really great. Like, this is incredibly useful for my problem. Nobody really expected it to be that way. 
why is there so little documentation? So I figured I'd write some documentation for it, and then I wrote documentation, then I figured I'd give a talk on it, and then I figured I'd write a book on it, and then it just kept going from there. Yeah, so okay, so you have, I think the first thing I, I saw was learntlaplus.com, was that yeah. the documentation you're talking about? Yeah, it was supposed to be a tutorial because there weren't any like easy tutorials online that I could find, and then it just kept going from there, but that was the first thing, that was like early 2017. Yeah, and then I saw some talks, and then yep. you also have a workshop, too? Yeah, I also published a book on it, actually, just a few months back, Practical TLA Plus, with A-Press. Cool, and then um, I saw that the consulting, that's, like, TLA Plus specific? You, like, do trainings? Is that... Well, it's, 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 it's a lot of TLA Plus, but I also do a few other things. Like, I do Alloy, I've done some consulting in amazing constraint optimization. It Just essentially whatever, like, I feel comfortable with, like in the formal method space that I feel like I can like really teach well. It's a lot of those stuff too. Yeah, I just find it, it fascinating um, that you were just, you, you came across formal methods in, you know, your startup work. And for, it seems like you just like, well, now I just want to do this on only this f for my life, for my career. Is that kind of how it happened? You just, you fell in love with this topic? Well, not, well, sort of, because, I mean, it's definitely a really interesting topic, like, obviously really into it, but I think what I really enjoy is sort of technical writing and, science and like, technical communication. And, I mean, if you sort of, like, see a lot of the writings I do, a lot of it is on formal methods because that's, I think, what I'm best at, but, like, some of it's on accent analysis and, like, lightweight specification and the history of programming. I just really like communicating and teaching ideas, and I think formal methods at this stage has this highest sort of um, strength-obscurity ratio where it's way more useful to a lot of people than know about it. And that's sort of what I focus on teaching for that reason. Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I can tell from the way you, you write that um, you enjoy it, or at least it, it feels that way, that you, you enjoy writing it. I, I, I enjoy your writing, and yeah. I think it comes across. Yeah. Nobody actually enjoys writing. It's more of a compulsive thing for most people, <laughs> for most writers. Yeah. Well, I, I, I liked, I, on one of your essays, you talked about how you asked your editor to be uh, needlessly cruel. And that if he gets extra points, if he makes you cry. Yeah, so, uh, he didn't. I that, win. That, did, did he make you cry? <laughs> no, he didn't. I won. <laughs> you won. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I feel empathy for you because um, a few days, uh, maybe we'll talk about it later. But because uh, mm -hmm. I, think, I think you'd have interesting things to say about this. But I, I wrote, I spent a lot of time writing uh, an essay uh, this past week. And I got some terrible reviews that almost, but not, didn't quite bring me to tears. So... It is. It is hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, getting getting cruel feedback, or not cruel, but just harsh feedback. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's um, let's get um, into the 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 formal method stuff. And I, I thought it would be useful to start by uh, situating ourselves and defining terms. Mm -hmm. um, I think your recent essay, "Why People Don't Use Formal Methods," mm -hmm. that that was on the front page of Hack News. I think you did a really wonderful job because there is. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of um, separate topics, and they all, you know, to. And I think the the words that correspond to those topics are pretty good, uh, and and I'm glad that there are like separate words for all these things. So, mm -hmm. um, do, can you roll off the top of your head, or do you want? Or I, I wrote some of them down if you want me to kind of tee them up. Um, certainly, I can talk a bit more about this. So, one thing to keep in mind is that, like any sort of field in, in like programming, formal methods is a big field. So. Saying I do formal methods is kind of like saying I do web. It kind of gives somebody an impression, but 
there's a lot of nuance there. But also given that is that a lot of fields of programming are sort of very big. So you have, for example, with web, I mean, there's probably more people who do like web development than, I don't know, live in New York. So the state. So, but like formal methods is extremely small and it's also very fractured because people, like everybody who sort of is in it often knows like one or two things, but doesn't really know the whole space of it. And the consequence of that is that there's a lot of ideas in there and some of the ideas overlap, but the people who overlap with their ideas don't necessarily share the same terms. So I ended up inventing a lot of new terms for that essay, not necessarily because I think these are better terms, but just because since, again, not everybody sort of shares the same like terminology, it was easier for me to talk to a public audience about it by just inventing terms of being clear that they were terms that I just invented on the spot to talk about differences. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that's a good clarification. Yeah. So, yeah, I divided it into two um, categories. Again, these are very, very fuzzy categories. And there's a lot of overlap, and there's, like, things that don't belong to either category, things that belong to both categories of thinking about code and thinking about designs. And then we divide each of those into two separate categories of how do we specify and how do we verify. Specifying being how do we describe what we want to be the case and verification being how we show that what we want to be the case is the case. And that's pretty much all formal methods is specification and verification to some to one or two degrees. Got it. Okay, so just to recap, so we have, is it like four, should we imagine it as four quadrants, specifying, verifying, and then on one axis and code and design on the other? And so there are yeah. like four, yeah. Again, yeah, very, 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 very like broad, probably wrong, but wrong in a very useful way. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, do you want to talk about each of the four quadrants a bit or yeah, what's the, what's the next uh, important distinctions to make? Um, yeah, so actually I should probably just mention this right now is that because I really didn't actually define the term formal methods is sort of the study of how we can show that things are correct in ways that are sort of irrefutable. So for example, you might be familiar with say testing, right? So yep, testing yep. works testing works, but it only shows like very limited amounts of sort of verification. Like if you prove your thing works for inputs one through a hundred, maybe it fails for, for input 101. So formal verification is a way of sort of saying, okay, we're going to test every possible thing. And we're going to show that no matter what you put in, it will always give what we expect. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I, I'm, I think there's a, you used a few terms there that are interesting. Mm -hmm. you, you used like, um, in particular irrefutable. Yeah. I think it's an interesting... Which is story. also incredibly misleading. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll let you go give the high level, and then we'll drill down into the specifics. Yeah. So, so like, drill down into if irrefutable, or give the high level with, like, the rest of the space first, which you prefer. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Let's give the high level, and then we'll, we'll drill down into some of the specifics later. Okay, so... And those four quadrant-ish things, and again... This is sort of a formal methods thing of just like always qualifying all of my statements. Qualifying again, like this is more of just like a very rough model than anything else. So for like code specification, you have a few different things. You have external theorem, which is essentially writing your code, then writing in a separate like file, essentially, here are the properties of this code. That's very similar to what we call testing, but more rigorous. We have really strong type systems like dependent types or refinement types. Again, similar to static types, but um, harder to check, but more comprehensive. And then we have this thing called um, logics and conditions, originally called horologic, but now there's a bunch of different branches where you essentially say, 
in the function, given these inputs, these properties should be true of the outputs. And this corresponds to something called contracts in programming, which is a very powerful verification technique. But it's of the three ways that we verify code, like informally, it's the most obscure by far. Hmm. Essentially, the and, easiest way to describe it is assertions. Yep, yep, okay. And so j just to, this, this question probably should have been asked earlier, but um, you, you used just in the last description, informally versus formally. And so yeah. th the way you're using that term, informally means kind of like eyeballing it, informally means a computer is checking something. Um, informally, I hear what I'm using informally to mean, um, it, it, it can be automated. In fact, it usually should be automated, but it's automated in a way that doesn't give you a hundred, it doesn't give you complete confidence. Essentially informal verification is still automated verification. It's just done in a way that's one much easier and two, not as comprehensive as formal verification. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I guess, is it, um, it's a spectrum -y thing or it's, yes, it's a spectrum -y thing. Okay, so formal is at like a hundred, or it's just like past fifty percent, or it's a, it's basically a hundred percent. In fact, that's like what I think one of the things that people miss is that for the most part, um, formal verification is while the most powerful sort of way of sort of verifying that stuff is correct, probably not the most productive in most cases. Because to get to a hundred percent, you have to go much, much, much harder than you, it takes to go to like ninety nine percent. But ninety nine percent is informal. Y yes ish i mean it's really hard to sort of put these things on a spectrum because like what does it even mean to be 99 percent correct versus 98 percent correct right <laughs> yes i i see well i guess i'm i'm just trying to figure out what what um the whole field is because you know when you talk about formal methods mm -hmm. versus informal i don't know but maybe maybe this was a, a bad digression i'll 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 let you get back to the uh, the high level mm -hmm. i know we should, we should probably drill into that digression um at some point so in any case so now, the thing is that like all these ways that we can spec, we could test both formally and informally. Like, for example, like if I write, so for example, this is the specification of my function, I could test it using formal verification, or I could write like a million like auto manual tests or put it through a really intense code review. But if I want to sort of like formally verify it, what I could do is I could write, I could write, for example, what's called a proof, which is essentially a mathematical statement sort of showing from our basic premises how we can conclude that this is going to be correct in a way that that a machine can check. Often these days that's considered like really, really hard. So when we can, we usually shell out to a solver, for example, a SAT solver or what's called an SMT solver to automate some steps for us. That's pretty much the main way that we verify code is correct formally. and. It works, but it's also really intensive and like labor intensive. I think the fastest anybody's ever done it was four lines a day using like cutting edge, all the resources of Microsoft combined. Um, and that's one of the reasons why for the foreseeable future, code verification is probably going to remain in the realm of experts. Code specification is really powerful and I think could be more widely used, but code verification at least formally isn't really on the horizon for like mainstream use. Got it. Okay. So, okay, so I ju just to recap, because I feel like that got a little bit messy there. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, messy, it's, it's, it's a messy topic. Yeah, yeah, and I, I interrupted with, with sorts of things. Um, no I thought maybe let's just um, let, 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 I like start over uh, in the sense of... With an example? Um, well, I was thinking maybe, like, j just a picture in my head, j even just mm -hmm. for me, 
um, the field is called formal methods. Yes. And then that field has four subcategories, code verification, design verification, code specification, design specification. Is that correct or am I not? Four ways of thinking about it. Usually people do either code or design. So they do both code verification specification or design verification specification. Um, I mostly make that division to make it a bit clear, like what we're talking about when we talk about sort of like proving correct versus specifying correct versus whatnot. Okay, so what you're saying, usually the, I, any given person would only, it, it only deals with code or design, usually. Usually, and I'm waving my hands very dramatically here when I say usually. <laughs> okay, so, uh, and does that, does that hold for you too? You are I mostly more, do design but, verification. Design and verification. specification and specification. I, I mostly do design work. Design, design, it, design, design and specification are like the same thing. Um, so when I say sort of I do design, I like most people when they say that they do formal spec. Okay, this is weird. Um, usually, if a person says that they primarily work with specification languages, they mostly do formal specification. They usually mean that they do design specification and design verification. Yep. Okay. Which you'd not be surprised because they said formal specification, why are they doing verification? But, you know, again, fuzzy terms, small field, fractured field, lots of different, like, niches to it. Okay. Um, one, one question that I have here in my notes I wrote down was, mm -hmm. what's the difference between verification and validation? So verification is basically taking a description of how the code should be and proving the code matches that. So, for example, let's say I say that this code should always sort a list in ascending order. The specification would be that, say, every two indices, if one indice is longer than the other one, it's going to be higher than the at one. Um, and then verification is basically showing how that's going to always be true, right? Validation is when you say, wait, do we actually need a sorting function? Maybe we actually need, like, a maximum function. Maybe that we are doing the entire thing, wrong thing entirely. It's sort of at the level of what are the human requirements we need and how do we show we match the human requirements of the total system. So, yeah, and that's usually outside the scope of formal methods because that deals a lot more with sort of social systems and, like, understanding customer requirements. Oh, okay. So it sounds like you have, on, on one level, you have reality, and you're trying to match the specification to reality, and then below that you have the code, and then you're trying to match the code to the specification? Yeah. That's, I think, a really good way of putting it. And then the former would be validation, the second would be verification. Okay, got it. Yeah, so we're trying to validate our business specification with the market, and then we're trying to verify that our code meets the business specification. Exactly. Got it. And so, and that is for, and th that involves both code verification and design verification, because once we write, in order to validate that the specification meets the business meet needs, we like, then we'll do the design verification stuff. And then once the design is verified, then we'll um, write the code and then try and verify that the code meets the specification. So yeah, in an, in, in an ideal world with like an infinite amount of resources, yes, that's how it would look. Got it. Okay. And so today, what, what you were alluding to is that, you know, the, at, at, the, at the fastest, you could do four lines of code. Potentially in a hundred years, We'll have some improvements in theoretical understanding of this stuff, or just machines will be a lot faster, and potentially we'll be able to do all this stuff for every line of code, and it'll be just as fast as we write code I today. I don't know. 
Um, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to sort of make predictions about like 10 years from now, because again, remember 50 years ago, we first started like doing phone verification. We're like, oh yeah, in 10 years, we're going to have everything verified. And so we're like, no, that's crazy. In like 20 years, we'll have everything verified. And now it's been 50 years and nothing's verified. So, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, look, proofs are hard. Like validation's hard. We often don't really know how to represent specs. These are all really difficult topics. It's hard to sort of like make predictions of how things will go out. I think that there's like, definitely going to be expansion of design verification, but just because I think that right now we've seen it be really successful. But code verification, I think for the foreseeable future will remain sort of a niche topic that's done in special cases by experts. And I don't know, I don't know if or when it will ever be a thing that everybody's doing. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, well, I guess, so I guess to drill down a bit, um, you you talked about irrefutable proofs, mm -hmm. uh, like things that are checked by the computer. Yeah. One of the things I found in your writing that relates to this is that you were, you were talking about how like twenty percent of math of published mathematical proofs aren't actually correct. There's like an error that people that like the person who wrote it missed and the reviewers missed. At least according to that one reference I found, it could be that reference is wrong or it could be that reference is understating things. Yes. Well, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, for, for you to question in the spirit of, you know, questioning everything, yeah. you, you have to even question the question, the thing that, that refutes things. So, yeah. um, so, so when I say the, when I say the proof is irrefutable, I mean, assuming the following is true, assuming that you, the prover is correct, assuming that sort of any auxiliary tools that you're using with the prover is correct. And finally, assuming that, assuming that like you've missed all the, assuming that you have all the requirements, at which point we show it's irrefutable for the specific context you're talking about. So a common thing that's sort of said is like, you can never actually prove a thing will always work because for all you know, you're going to start the equation. Somebody's going to hit the um, server with a baseball bat. Yes, of course. And so I guess that's, I think, yeah, the word irrefutable is interesting because you could say the same thing about mathematics. Like uh, a proof is irrefutable if the people who reviewed it for the journal didn't make any mistakes. Yeah. If you assume that to be true. Because mm -hmm. that, that's essentially what you're doing when you're assuming that the, um, the, the code verifier has no bugs. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, I believe that like some of them, for example, I believe the um, core for Coke, and don't quote me on this, but the core for the um, Coke prover has been sort of like proven by hand to be correct. Um, so that we know that the core is, is essentially irrefutable, but all the auxiliary tooling is sort of like hodgepodge together as academic projects. So that's less trustworthy. Well, so uh, I'm struggling. Why is cock irrefutably correct? Because it was I, done by hand. I, so here's the thing. I, this is what I've heard. And this is like what I've heard from like people who've worked on it. I cannot like say exactly how that's the case. And I cannot like, if you basically put a gun to my head and said, is this true? I'll say like, maybe, <laughs> I don't yeah, know enough about the topic. Yeah, again, like I do have to clarify here that one of the things that has been affected by me like talking a lot about formal methods and like working with it is that I don't really, I'm not really comfortable with, like saying things I don't know like are absolutely the case. So like given that I've not worked directly with Cock and I haven't like looked at the papers, I don't know enough about how they verified it to tell you how it's been verified. I see, I see. Yeah. So I guess what I'm driving towards is that um, the, diff the main difference between formal methods uh, like computer methods and mathematical proofs is like uh, whether a human or a computer is doing the checking. Um, mathematical proofs tend to be less rigorous than formal methods. Yeah, why is that? 
Um, because most most mathematical proofs aren't like so, aren't automated. So the thing is, is that if we have sort of a computer checking the things, assuming that we've built this all correctly, assuming, 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 we can essentially say whether every step is a correct or incorrect inference, given that we have to break down the level of computer. But with mathematics, often the purpose of mathematical proof is to convince people not to like 100% prove something's the case. So there will be things like, this one step, we can sort of show what this heuristic argument, and everybody looks at the argument and goes like, yeah, that makes sense. They can sort of skip that one step of it, of the mathematical mm -hmm. proof. Um, and that's often done because, you know, you don't want to sort of sit down and sort of say, okay, in this context, we can prove that we can associative addition. In this context, we're going to prove that we can use induction and that induction is actually like a reasonable theorem to have in the first place. Whereas the computer, you have to do all of that stuff. So it reduces the chance that you will accidentally like assume something is like, possible or easy when it turns out that in this one very particular in instance you can't do it i see that's quite a, a claim I, I i think i've heard it before but i just want to repeat what you yeah. said that um mathematics is about convincing and explaining to other humans it's not about uh like making sure that you're not fooling yourself or is that kind of what you're um, getting at? i mean you're, you're trying to convince other humans who are very very invested in not fooling themselves mm-hmm I see. I th yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I think one good example of what I mean, and this was something I read. I think it was by Terence Tao. Is that the one difference between sort of the recent proof of the ABC conjecture and the proof of like Fermat's last theorem is that in like the first five pages of the proof of Fermat's last theorem, people were getting interesting results from it. So even though like it was like a really, really, really huge proof, very early on in the proof, people were saying, "Oh, this is interesting. This gives us some like really cool new machinery to work with." This is already being useful to us. And that convinces people that there's something empirically interesting here. Whereas with the ABC proof that I think has recently been claimed to be like invalid, you had to read the entire thousand page document to get any value out of it whatsoever. So that made people less, less convinced, mathematicians less convinced that there was, that it was all correct and that it was a useful document. Does that make sense? Uh, so I, um, I, I understand the story. I'm not exactly sure how it relates, uh, like what, what, what I was supposed to get out of the story. Yeah, basically just the idea that like math mathematics, like any anything else we do is sort of like also in addition to like being a technical institution is also a social institution. It's all about how like mathematicians interact and how like we all do things as a group. And similarly, like formal methods is also a social institution as well as a technical institution. And one of the consequences of this is that with mathematics as a social institution, some amount of mathematics is in the social act of convincing mm. and rhetoric which is how it should be given that like we are not machines. Whereas with formal verification, often the only thing that we care about is sort of making something past the formal verification tooling, which means that it is almost entirely in that one context about making sure that every single thing is correct. Got it. Okay. Well, I think this is a, a good point to transition to the difference between uh, theorem provers, which is I think most of what we've been talking about and model mm -hmm. checkers. So essentially there's two ways to sort of show something's correct. You can either sort of like construct a rigorous argument showing it's correct, or you can sort of show how it's impossible to be incorrect by brute forcing the entire possibilities. So I guess here's a simple example of what I'm talking about. Um, let's say you have, let's say you have sort of something that works over 32 bit floats, right? Like you have some function that takes two 32 bit floats and returns a float, right? Sure. So there's only about 2 billion, there's only about like two, three billion 32-bit floats, right? <laughs> so you could literally just go by hand and check every single one of those combinations. And if you do that, you can actually just check and brute force and make sure that every single thing 
does what you expect it to. And that does sound like a bit of a um, burden, but proving stuff's kind of also a giant like cluster. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I, and then the, the last um, kind of thing I'll I'll ask uh, in this abstract thing before we get concrete is mm -hmm. um, I think a very common programmer question, or I you know I, even I don't even have to speak for other programmers. I could just speak very personally. When I hear about specification and verification, um, I really want these things to be like tied to my code. You know, like I don't like um, having to like duplicate the effort of like spe specifying and then writing code and then having to like eyeball or verify. Like I, basically, I, like you know, I, w I wonder if if I could just write the specification and then the compiler writes the code for me, or or the specification is the code. So I feel like you have um, terms for that. What I. Yeah, yeah, so but... so so the term for sort of taking um, a specification and generating the code from that is called synthesis. This is not something that we can do mainstream. It's still like a very niche academic topic and one that like a lot of people are obviously working really hard on. But it turns out that generating code is really hard. <laughs> um, I can actually link some stuff because Nadia Pol Polakabora is like one of the big like people doing a lot of the really cool work in this space, and she recently did a talk at Strange Loop about some of the work she did and it's all really cool stuff but she's also like very clear this is not going to be mainstream in the next 10 years it's not going to be close to mainstream in the next 10 years so yeah it turns out that that's a lot harder to do than just sitting down and showing that code match the specification which is itself a lot harder to do than like showing that code almost most likely matches the specification informally so yeah there's like all these tiers of difficulty and i think one of the things that happens is that people get fixated on sort of the golden mean the, the 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 sort of end state but at to the point where they sort of like ignore like all the really big benefits that we can get in between okay yeah that's i yeah i know what you mean and so mm -hmm. i think let's start let's start talking about some of those benefits you can get um even now even in the not end perfect state um mm -hmm. in the like imperfect world we live in uh, you have been singing from the rooftops the virtues of using TLA plus for design verification. So um, mm -hmm. let's let's hear more about that. Yeah. So one thing I do want to say first really quickly, um, we do also get benefits like shared term errors with code verification. For example, you get things like that get integrated in programming, just like a lot of type systems do some partial verification. Rust, is at, Rust has a borrow checker and that basically lets you do a lot of verification automatically. So we are making a lot of steps to make certain aspects of verifying code more accessible. And we've seen a lot of success with a lot of those steps. So it's not just sort of working with designs where we see immediate benefits. Got it. So you're saying um, that even though, so both for designs and for code, even though we're not at the end stage, like intermediate or 80-20 versions of these formal methods ha are useful, both in code and design. Yes. Um, but I think what happens is that um, a lot of sort of the code verification stuff has basically been tied to a language, which is really good. And is, But design verification has not been tied to languages, as in you don't have to use a particular language in your code base to get the benefits of design, of design verification, which is one of the reasons I think it's so valuable. One of the reasons I think things like TLA plus and Alloy have a lot of really good uses even today. Oh, interesting. So if you're using Agda, you can get those benefits. But if you're not, then you're kind of screwed. So that and, and that's the the 
um, appeal of something like TLA plus, you can use it with any language? Yes. Part of the appeal anyway. Part of the appeal. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And I guess it, it's similar to um, like test-driven development. Like unit tests can be done in any language. Exactly. Or, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, same, same idea. Or or agile. Agile can be done in any language. Yeah. And that ends up being really important for like the the development, like socially, of like a lot of these ideas. Because if you don't have to sort of change, if you can start like getting the benefits without having to change your entire code base, you're more likely to do it than if you have to sort of rewrite everything from scratch. To, to get some value out of it. Yep, yeah, of course. Okay, so let's um, finally dig into it. Uh, TLA plus. So for those who aren't familiar, could you do your, you know, whatever, two-minute spiel of w- what TLA plus is, like the motivations behind it, how it came about, um, all, that, okay. all that jazz. Sure. So I really got to work better on it's actually one of these interesting like challenges, sort of like how do you explain this without demos? I found that the easiest way to describe it is to show people demos, but obviously <laughs> we can't do that on a podcast. So, so okay, so obviously when we sort of are designing, when we're sort of building systems that involve, say, multiple actors or multiple programs or like client servers, we have the code, right? That actually embeds all of these things. But the code is simply how we do these implementation. It doesn't sort of show our high-level understanding of what, should be going on and what is going on. For example, imagine that you sort of even have something as simple as say like a web a web app that has both a front end and a back end and then servers in a deployment system. You're sort of looking at a space that can't really be encoded in just a single code base. You're at the very least looking at multiple code bases all interacting with each other, right? Yep. So code essentially, so none of this like of the code that you've written really expresses or is aware of the full design of your system. And because of that, it can't really help you with verifying the design itself. So people sort of implicitly understand this. That's why people do things like whiteboarding or draw UML diagrams or sort of like talk about like doing accept, accept like acceptance driven development. It's sort of this like initial understanding of hey, there's this like broader design that has its own challenges beyond just how are each in the line of code is like working or not working. But if we have this idea that we have a larger scale design that we care about, why not specify it? And then why not test that specification for issues? And that's sort of a lot of the motivation behind TLA+, which is by Leslie Lamport, the same guy who did LaTeX and basically half of um, distributed computing. So it it sounds like you can almost think about TLA plus as a direct replacement for documentation or whiteboarding or UML diagrams. Augment augmentation, not replacement. Still write your documents, please. Document stuff. Oh, and, okay. So, and the because the specification isn't understandable. You can't just read a specification and, and understand a system. You still need documentation. Oh, you, 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 no, you can totally read a, like often people, you can read a specification. It can give you a lot of insight, but like, it, it's, it's like that thing where I, I think it was, da- it was um, David McKeever who was like, sure, caffeine can help you replace sleep, but caffeine isn't sleep. Things hmm. like tests and specifications can help you understand a system, but they're not documentation. Documentation exists at a human level, like even a higher than any specifications you can write. Still, write your documentation, write your requirements analysis, and then to write your specifications. Yeah, well, I... I, I I'm, not, I, I'm not really selling you on using TLA+, Plus, am I? I'm basically just like going like, no, it's not, it's not that great. It's not that great, everyone. Well, I guess what, um, what I'm reacting to is um, 
it seems like we just keep layering things on. You know, we, yes. we have our code, and then, okay, well, actually, you have to write these tests for your code. Oh, well, I have to do this all this agile stuff to, like, write the code in the right way. And then, oh, actually, you also need these integration tests. And, oh, actually, now you need to document your code. And then, also, you have to write um, now this TLA plus specification for your code. So it, 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 I, it would be nice if one of these things could, like, replace or some of the other ones so we can like simplify some of these other things um it it, it feels like um we're just going to keep layering on things and eventually we'll all be stuck writing four lines of code a day i mean there's a reason we're paid a lot of money as engineers this is hard stuff i mean this is really fundamentally hard stuff and there's a reason we're paid a lot of money to do software right well i think that's that's an interesting claim um are we paid a lot of money to do software because it's fundamentally hard, or is it, you know, in incidentally hard? I guess, I guess both. Um, so, okay, so I guess, I guess what you're sort of asking is like, because just to clarify, it, it, it's like you're sort of asking like, it seems like we have to do all this extra stuff. Is it worth the? Is it worth the effort? Because you're sort of like talking about it from a productivity perspective, you're worried about it sort of slowing everything down, right? It's not. Is it all worth it? Because it's more. That it feels like the each each thing we add on, unit tests, integration tests, formal specification, documentation, feels a bit like an ad hoc solves one part of the problem, and it's not like a unified solution to. It's it's, it's not like d does that make sense at all? It doesn't it doesn't it feel does. like yeah okay. So my thoughts there is that a unified solution would be nice. It sort of solves everything for us. Historically and empirically, almost all the ones we tried have not worked out. It turns out that coding as a is it turns out that like complicated problems often do unfortunately require complicated solutions. Yeah, well, I, I actually now that just hearing what I hearing myself talk and hearing what you just said, it reminds me of the um, no silver bullet essay, which yeah. most people misunderstand. But the the, the 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 central metaphor of that that I remember is um, medicine. How before germ theory, we thought there'd be like some magical cure uh, some simple magical cure to diseases but then um, once we uh finally accepted germ theory we realized that there would be no one big solution to be like a lot of tiny little solutions that'd be hard to find and so yeah i, I guess that's kind of what you're saying about with software there, there's going to be no unified one solution it's going to be like a bunch it's going to be a bunch of little add-on things that we'll have to keep adding on to software to make it better incrementally over time just like we, yeah we have to take a flu shot every year and we also have to take a tetanus shot and we also have to take a polio vaccine. Like there's no one magical shot that'll do all of those vaccines. We have to like take them all. Yeah. And I think that that's true with almost any sort of human system. Like almost any, I think that with almost every sort of system, like system you're going to look at, whether it's sort of software engineering or like medicine or I, I, I'm assuming, and I could be wrong as we all know, like we do not know other fields very well with like other kinds of engineering and also with like law and such. It's just that there's like really complicated problems that like there's a million small solutions for. No one's ever like no one ever finds like one magical thing that just fixes everything. Yeah, so I I, I hear that for sure, and um, th then I feel like on the other hand there are times mm -hmm. when um, you have uh, the uh, he the geocentric theory theory, and you add epicycles and epicycles and epicycles, and then all of a sudden. Um, you realize, oh wait, if we just make it a heliocentric theory, we get rid of all those epicycles and, and everything's more elegant and we've, we've replaced 
these ad hoc things with, with a new elegant foundation. So that happens too sometimes. And then you have to start figuring out the processions of stuff. And then you realize you have to add in general relativity and special relativity to sort of adjust for like other things, which are verified, but also incredibly complicated. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess um, yeah. that's kind of the beginning of infinity thing. Like we'll never, we'll never quite be able to explain everything. But um, yeah. Uh, it, I guess to go back to my original skepticism, it's really a skepticism of like ad hocness, mm-hmm. um, and that in, you, yeah. But um, could you but clarify anyways, what you mean by ad hocness? That, um, yeah, ad hocness is a, is a hard thing to define. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is if, if I asked you to list all of the practices you would recommend for an engineering team, like unit tests mm-hmm. and, uh, maybe, maybe just list them. For example, what would, what would be all of the, the, but, but so writing code, version control, you know, maybe just list, list yeah. some of the things you would um, recommend. I guess some of the ones that I think would be recommended would be, um, So formal specification, I think obviously I've got to sort of say that. Um, obviously writing code, you have to do writing code. Um, version control is important. Code review is extremely important. It's one of the few things that we are empirically sure with multiple studies is a great idea. Um, code review, probably. Yeah, sorry, code review. Did I, did I say something else? Oh, I, th- I thought maybe you said, um, sorry, never mind. I'm sure yeah, you, that's co- what you said. So basically, You're just dropping out of it. Yeah, my mistake. Um, so yeah, basically code review, really, really good. Um, Taking time to do stuff, adequate sleep, exercise, good <laughs> relationships with clients, like constant feedback, um, po- really careful postmortems and system analysis, like really careful premortems. Um, I realize a lot of this isn't actually in the code level. Do you want sort of what I think would be effective things for coding? Oh well, yes. Um, um, then I, I think I, at the yeah. Yeah, go for it. Coding probably like unified style like randomized testing um although that sort of is interesting because like we're not quite sure what are the best tests to write like i think a lot of people are really fond of unit tests i think those are great and you can write them really fast but there's also other things that are like really powerful like large scale like testing probably some like measure of observability like i'm not sure if this is really supporting your point or mine here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm not sure either, but I'm kind of. I kind of like where this is going. I think neither of us really know where it's going. Uh, yeah, I. Yeah, I. I guess maybe this is just how it is. Like, I, to pick like another example, if you were to say like, it, uh, if you want to be like the best tennis player in the world, what are all the things you have to do? Uh, I, I guess the list would kind of be long mm-hmm. and complicated, and then someone would be like, no, actually, you have to add this thing too. And now that we know. That racket, you know, this this feature about rackets are important. You have to worry about that too. And oh, actually, you know, we didn't realize that gluten was bad or whatever. Or gluten is good or yeah. you know, whatever it is. I guess. It, oh, I, I, I do. I do see one simplification that I think you would find like as interesting as a simplification. I yes. think a lot of I, I think a lot of unit test integration tests. Not all of them, but a lot of them can be folded into a, a combination of property tests and contracts. Okay, that's yeah, just my opinion, that. though. Yeah, yeah, tell me more um, about that. So, so are you familiar with contracts? Yes, but um, let's assume not. <laughs> okay, so essentially a contract is an assertion that you make as either usually a precondition or postcondition for your function. So say if you have something that takes the tail of a list, um, you can make the postcondition that saying that it will have one less element than the original list. 
And also, if you append the head of the list to the output, you'll get you'll get the um, same thing. So essentially, these are like essentially specifications that ride in the code itself, and they can be used for formal verification, but they can also be, and are more commonly used for runtime verification. Every time you call the function, you just check the preconditions and postconditions, and if they're wrong, you just sort of stop execution and raise an error. And it turns out that if you do this, one, it's really effective, but two, you can now start to um, test by just randomized like inputs pumping it through a system and just if you have a bug the appropriate contract will stop and raise the issue so you start to get really simple integration tests from that oh okay yeah that, that's very interesting it's yeah. not so yeah that, like the chaos monkey approach well chaos monkey i guess is more about like letting servers yeah. and stuff but, but essentially the randomized yeah. testing with fine-grained responses well the randomized testing reminds me of haskell's quick check where you can like, yeah. generate tests based on types mm-hmm and then th these are runtime assertions, which I guess in in a in a type world would be kind of like um, like uh, dependent types. Um, sort of. So the thing is, is that contracts. So I guess quick description between contracts and types. Um, a lot of overlap between the two ideas. The main difference is that types aim for what's called legibility. They aim for being able to really easily analyze them statically, while contracts aim for expressivity. They aim for the ability to encode arbitrary assertions. So for example, like if you really wanted to, you could write a contract that says this is only called by function this function is only called by functions that have palindromic names. I see. I see. Which okay, yeah, it. which is yeah. probably not something you want to do, but like you can easily do things like say refinement typing, like this should only be called with values that are greater than zero and it will always return values that are less than zero. That that's more of a type level thing, but um, you're saying that contracts are much more expressive. Yeah. yeah it sounds like contracts have access to the not only the, yeah. this, not only the, the static, like AST, but also like the actual code, so you can get like the the name of the function, and it's also have access to like runtime information. Maybe it even yeah. has access to past runs, <laughs> it, like like this. If I've been tested three times before, then fail. <laughs> um, I mean, that's. I think that's probably not something you want to be doing. But like, it's it's more like long line. I guess here's a more reasonable thing. Like, after this is run, this mutation should happen in this class, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, so yeah. Well, I think that's. I, I agree that that's something that that excites me. I, I like the idea of, of simplifying. It's like a mathematical yeah. idea. Like you know, being able to describe, the same amount of things or more things with with less words. Mm -hmm. um, but, but then, yeah, I also understand the, um, the no sil silver bullet solution of, of you just have to, we just have, we, it, it's a complicated thing. We just have to keep layering on improvements over time. Yeah. And, and then maybe at about... one point we'll get a paradigm shift and we can like have a new foundation, but um, yeah. Anyway. I mean, and also like the thing is, is that you might, you might end up in a case where, Things are, are simplified, but on the whole, things are more complicated. Like it might turn out that we can like fold five ideas into one, but also we need six ideas total. So I'm not doing a great job explaining this. I'm sorry. No, no. Well, yeah. I there's, guess... there's a reason. I, there's a reason I'm much better at writing than public speaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you are quite a good writer. So, yeah. um, well, I guess let let's focus on the things that um, I think we we doing a good job of focusing on the the discussiony kinds of things because mm -hmm. your essays and I've done this a lot in other podcasts um, too when I interview people who are good writers I try and like start with their writing 
as mm -hmm. a, a foundation and then kind of go where uh, where I find interesting and hopefully mm -hmm. it's where other people who will read your things and like wish that they could have asked you this question. Hopefully. I'll oh, I see. Okay. So in that case, uh, let me try changing sort of my answer to that. Um, sure. Because, okay, so I think that I'm going to actually shift this about like, why do we have to keep on Lambert stuff? And I'm going to sort of shift this in a slightly different direction then. Please. And it's something that I think might be more interesting for discussion. Are you familiar with sort of systems theory? Um, let's, let's drill into it regardless. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's a mixture of like really interesting ideas and really cultish ideas that sort of started like forming around like early last century and sort of developing, which is the idea that often we, uh, we approach systems, we approach like problems and think, oh, this really complicated problem. There's actually a simplification to it that we can make that makes it easy and we can sort of abstract it out. And then systems theory is the, is the group of people going like, wait a minute. What if that's actually not always the right approach? Maybe there's a better approach, which is what if we sort of look at this complicated problem and say, hey, this complicated problem is actually still a complicated problem. And what we should be doing instead is trying to find all the patterns inside the complicated problem that helps make it complicated and then try to sort of think of the complicated solutions or the simple solutions that address all of these like interconnected issues. So the idea here is that instead of sort of saying, oh, there's, really some, there's an easy answer here, we say, no, there's no easy answer. And now that we accept that there's no easy answer, how does this help us to have that revelation? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, maybe can you walk us through like a concrete example? Okay, um, sure. So here's a, here's a um, concrete example. And this is like the, the stuff that I've mostly been interested in applying to is system safety, which is how like, properties of safety and security arise in a system emergently. So actually, yeah, actually, I think I might've actually had a better idea for a, for an example here, which is feature interaction, which I think is a little bit easier to talk about. Um, so imagine you have a system where you've got the following, um, you can, people can sort of sign up and register for an account and they have to validate their email address, right? So they have to validate their email address to basically do stuff. And you also have a check basically in the registration form that they cannot validate an email address if it belongs to say a spammer email address, right? Like, you know, those like things like Teleworm and like use like Umail, which lets you get a bunch of free email addresses like in bulk. Yep. Yep. Okay. So now imagine you have that requirement and now you also have the requirement that if they get an error, um, if basically like the email gets lost, they can click upon that resends the validation email, right? Okay. And now let's imagine that we finally have a requirement that you can change your email address. Do you suddenly see the bug that we now have? You can give them a good email address and then change it afterwards? Yes. Um, which, and not only that, but often you can end up without, even if we have the requirement that you can still change your email address to a bad email address, they can still register with a good email address change it to a bad email address, and then resend the validation. And this is actually a bug I've encountered in the wild. And then the question is, though, is this a bug? Is this actually a bug? Would you say it is or would you say it isn't? If they don't resend the validation? Um, if, if they can do this, where they can register, where they can now validate a bad email address by resending a, by basically switching to a bad email address, then hitting the resend button. It sounds like a bug. Okay, so where's the buggy code? Oh yeah, well the bugs in the design. Yeah, but like not, not all the here's the thing: all the code's correct. 
there's no, all the code is satisfying all of its requirements. But this idea that there's an emergent bug that happens that we're not even sure if it's a bug or not until we actually talk to like figure out the broader goals of the system. This is what we call feature interaction. And it's the idea that multiple working things interacting can lead to a global bug that's not a local bug. That's what I'm sort of talking about by systems theory. This idea that we have to be thinking about all of the complexity that emerges from what we do to actually figure out whether things are correct or not. Does that give you a better intuition of sort of what's going on here? Yeah, I, I, a little bit. Maybe do you want to try one more example or move on? Um, I can try one more example. Um, give me a second to sort of think of a good example here. Um, so, and this well, is more so, like, yeah. Sorry, before you do, one thing that might be um, just misleading mm -hmm. me is um, Nikki Case talks about systems mm -hmm. and he talks about like cyclical systems. Yeah. And he has like these diagrams where um, you have like rabbits Feedback and loops. foxes. Yeah. Sorry. And you, and you can like model them. It sounds, I imagine that his systems are maybe the simplified versions that you're saying we should think about think about things more com com in a more complicated way, or is is his systems kind of what I should be thinking about? You're talking um, about? his yeah, they're they're similar. So what he's talking about is stocks and flows, right? And that's a particular way that people analyze dynamic subsystems. So it's a, a way that we essentially try to sort of find models of of complicated systems that helps capture some properties of them. It's one of the many tools that systems theorists do have. Another one that's actually really similar to like that's like really close to things is that state machines are used for systems analysis outside of programming. Okay, so got it. So state machines is, I think, a and, really good example. So state machines yeah. is used for systems analysis. Yes. So, got it. Okay, so I, I think I was just a little bit um, maybe confused yeah. when you mentioned that. Because um, you said that sometimes we were we, – systems theory was kind of a reaction to oversimplifying. Yes. And state machines seem like an oversimplification, but maybe I just haven't seen complicated enough state machines. Right, right. But, like the idea, yeah, but the idea of the state machine is it's a simplification, but it's one that explicitly doesn't capture all of the logic of a system and try, tries to capture also its more complexity, if that makes sense. It's, it, it, it's, it's a way of representing a complicated system in a simplified way, but also doing so without assuming that the system is actually the simpl simplification. The map is not the territory. Oh, okay. So, so that's, yeah. that's the key insight, uh, yeah. that the map is not the territory. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. So sorry, I, I feel like I, I lost the stack. So wh why were you going into systems theory? Because one of the ideas is that if things are this complicated, then it sort of suggests that even if we can find these simplifying paradigms of things like programming or like really anything, Innately, the fact that we're trying to build a system will make it complicated. There is no way to to easily simplify the complexity of it being a system. And that means that no matter how we sort of work on local levels to make things easier, we're still going to have to think about the entire battery, the connections, all the various aspects that it means to validate and verify if we want to actually match what the global system is doing to what we need it to do. So what this is sort of suggesting is that even if we do find these ways to like replace geocentrism and epicycles with heliocentrism, we're still going to have to deal with a lot of complicatedness in the new model, maybe less than the old one, but we're still going to have to deal with a lot. Got it. Okay. I see. Um, let's, let's go back. Uh, I, I'm, I enjoyed this conversation. I just want to go back to some of the um, maybe more code related stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so you alluded to earlier in this conversation that even though we don't have um, maybe the tools we'd want for formal methods, we have good enough tools for verifying uh, like the important parts of your system. So mm -hmm. it sounds like a, like an 80-20 rule kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I'd be curious to, to hear about what your heuristic is for when a, a given problem uh, is it sh like has the pro like what properties of um, of code or of design kind of begs for formal methods and when you say to stay away mm -hmm. is it like a function of you know how well funded you are how big your company is uh, how long the code has been around you know how do you think about when when to apply formal methods and when to not okay so this is going to be a lot of like um but talking right now because i mean so first of all like there's a consequence between formal design and sort of like formal coding um and also that there's the fact that i'm going to be majorly biased here on account of the fact that like again this is my job this is what i do for like a living but essentially there's costs to there's 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 risk of failure and cost of failure right so like any given system there's going to be a chance that it's going to go wrong and a chance, and probably that when it goes wrong, it'll have these effects. So the common example everybody uses to defend formal methods, which is sort of a incorrect example for a lot of reasons, is a pacemaker. If a pacemaker goes wrong, someone dies, right? Yeah. So you'd want to formally verify that. Turns out there's almost no formal verification in medical devices. It's not done. Um, so that's actually not the greatest Why? example, but uh, lots of reasons. But mostly because like. It's an industry that isn't well regulated in general, like when it comes to the software aspects of it, and it's kind of lagging behind. And also, like, there's a lot of different, like, there's like no standardization among like medical devices. And there's like so many different kinds. Like, it's 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 weird and messy. Most industries don't use it that you think would use it. That's scary. Yeah. Um, but in any case, there was actually a. Um, I remember there was actually a FDA advisor that came out like a year or two ago saying half a million pacemaker devices can be hijacked if you're close enough to them and you've got a radio. So, yeah, try to exercise. Exercise. Wow. Exercise is good. We know that works, and if it keeps you from needing a pacemaker, it reduces your chance of getting hacked. Wow. Yeah, um, but in any case, so. But there's also like a lower level cost. For example, if it, it could turn out that if your like system fails, then your clients will be really angry at you and they might threaten to sort of pull your contract. Or if the system fails, you're going to have to scramble and spend two weeks fixing it and trying to figure out where it failed and like what the bug is. Why is it crashing all of a sudden, right? So, yeah. yeah. So I think my general stance is that with, this, with like design specification and verification of designs, we've often found that it is cost effective for reducing the risk of angry clients and um, frantically tr like spending time fixing fires in production. That's my personal experience. That's the experience of most people I've talked to. It saves a lot of time there. So that's why I think that that is more broadly useful. Specification of code, just the specification after the verification, is a really good way of thinking about it and figuring out what you want to test informally. And then the verification of code, I think, is challenging enough, at least formally, that it's not something most people should be doing. Uh, so I'm realizing here that I don't really know what the specification of code is about. Because yeah. I, I know what verifying code is about. It's, it's showing that the code meets the spec. I know what verifying the design is and specifying the design is. What's yeah. specifying the code? Um, let's, let's find a good example here. Um, 
the, the, the example I, I commonly use is sorting. Like, okay, so how would you test whether something's sorted? Um, well, I guess, well, you, so you gave the yeah. example of, of you, you pick two indices. Oh, wow, well, yeah. You, I, I was hoping you'd, you'd have forgotten that by this point. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe maybe another example. Um, the maximum, the ma you have got, you've got a sequence of numbers, and you need to find the maximum of it, right? Okay. What's the maximum? How would you test that? Um, how would you test that I that I actually got the maximum? Yeah. Uh, I guess it's the and of less than of all of the things. Um, I, I, I don't know uh, what like how I'm, like what words I'm allowed to use in order to specify something. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I'm realizing that might also. Wow. It's really hard to like come up with a good example now. That I've already burned my sorted one. Um. So yeah, so you'd basically say it's going to be the one that's less than all the other ones, right? Sure. Yep. So you so you so you have this description of how it like works, what it means to be the maximum of a number. Now, most people, what they do that their solution is going to be to write tests, right? Like to write unit tests to say like, okay, the max of this list should be this, the max of this list should be this, the max of this list should be this, right? Sure. And that essentially creates an ad hoc specification, and the specification of the function is now. For this input, it gives this output. For this input, it gives this output. For this input, it gives this output. But that doesn't really describe what it means to be the maximum of a list. It's what you actually said, that it's the thing such that everything else is less than it. Yep. So essentially, the specification is then a way of describing what we actually expect that to do in a level that actually totally encompasses what we want out of it. Okay. So I see. But And then how is that different than the design specification? Um, design specification is sort of happening at a much higher level where you sort of hand wave away. The example I use here is that if you're trying to like sort of write something that figures out whether something's a park or a bird, it's kind of hard to specify that at the code level because like you have to sort of figure out how to objectively describe as a specification what a park or a bird is. But at the design level, you're basically just hand waving saying, okay, let's assume this can definitely figure out what parks or birds are. How does this work when we try to combine with our message queuing system? And how does this work when we combine with sort of the user constantly like trying to cancel stuff? It works at a higher level with like much more hand waving and looking at sort of the larger scale like interactions between things versus like each line of code and how it affects the local. So maybe better, another way of thinking about it is like local design versus global design. I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Th yeah, thanks for the reminder. I it, it's hard to keep all this stuff straight. Yeah, I mean, it it's as I'm I, and again the reason I'm using sort of like a lot of like specific terminology here is because a lot of times people sort of like have this implicit assumption of like how things are with this, and I find that often leads to some confusion when talking with people because they're not sure whether. <gasps> Wait, is this formal verification? I thought this was formal verification. So I try to like very clearly split into like all those different subcategories I said, which. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, another term, another word that comes up here that I'm wondering if you tease out for us is the difference between TLA plus and alloy. Are they mm -hmm. used for the same things? Um, there's several specification languages. So just as there's multiple programming languages, there's multiple design. There's multiple design languages. Um, and usually, if somebody says they're working in a specification language, they almost always mean a design language um, that like is used to write designs. Then you can sort of like do things called refinement to go from design to code. But again, that's a more complicated topic. Um, but in any case, so TLA plus is like the, is like one of the big ones these days. And it's the one that sort of like I started really working on. 
Um, Alloy's another one. Um, it uses some different base assumptions on what we want to be specifying and how we do it. And that leads to different design decisions. And it's also really, really good. I'm actually on the board for that. And we're working on writing more documentation for that too. Then there's other ones too. Those aren't the only two. Um, but those are the two that like I personally get the most excited about. Got it. Well, so I, I feel like I can't I can't resist. It's just like such... Go for it. I feel like it's a, a light and I just keep bumping into it, even though um, you, you've already kind of told me. Um, Go for the, it. The I idea mean, this of is a discussion, right? Code is just, uh -huh. it just, it just it keeps attracting me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm going to do this thing again that you, you said is kind of not a waste of time, but it's... A, a, it's it's a, it's a bit maybe a little distracting right now. So to me, the end state of, of where we want to go is mm -hmm. um, it, the the abstract specification stuff seems mm -hmm. to be like the the right level of talking about mm -hmm. things, um, and I, I, the essential versus uh, incidental complexity distinction. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a good frame. Maybe it's it's not precise enough. But anyways, it feels like specifications are almost by definition essential complexity mm -hmm. uh, and so if we're trying to get rid of all the incidental complexity a design language w that's based on math seems like a really great way to go and mm -hmm. then of course there might like uh, there might be uh, reasons why our specification language or, or the, the way in which we mathematically model something mm -hmm. isn't computable or isn't computable efficiently mm -hmm. and so I feel like the the dream is that somehow you have a an interactive compiler experience or interactive refinement experience where it, it you know, aids you in um, taking your design and making code that's somehow efficient. It, it, it like exposes why the, the specification you wrote isn't efficient and, and then it gives you ideas and you can like work with it. So I have three things to say to that. First of all, I want to say that the idea of talking about essential versus essential complexity, I never considered in those terms. That's a really good way of thinking about it. I really like that. Thank you. Um, oh, two, oh so, sorry. You, you yeah. aren't familiar with the Fred Book Brooks? No, no, no. I'm, 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 familiar with, I'm familiar with Fred Books. Like, I love Mythical Man Month. I've read it like multiple times. I just, for some reason, have never connected the idea of trying to think about specifications as essential versus essential complexity. That just, for some reason, never was a connection I made in my head. So oh, that's... Okay. That's what like I'm like, hey, thank you for that. That like really works out as like a great metaphor and a great model of understanding things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, hey, I don't know a whole lot. Like um, so then second thing is, and this is just my opinion. This is not like I'm not talking about any party line. This is just like my own like philosophical ramblings. I think that has been a thing that we've been doing for a while. Like C is a higher level specification of assembly, and then Python's a higher level specification of C, and then Prolog can be a higher level specification of all of that. So I think that essentially, as we get better and better at sort of synthesizing specification into code, we start to um, call them new programming languages and higher level ones. Yeah, well, so um, in that line of thinking is, but um, TLA plus doesn't compile down to yeah right so so it, it it it's kind of broken it's it's broken that line from itself kind of on purpose it's saying like I, my job isn't to compile down to Python or whatever mm -hmm. you know my job yeah. is just and the reason we do that and again like TLA plus isn't the only thing it doesn't and it's not even the first thing that does it but the reason we do that is so that way we can talk about specification at any arbitrary level of complexity. Like I can write a specification where I'm talking about, okay, the actors in the system, 
One of them is like our cluster, our server cluster. Another one is our giant ETL pipeline. The third is our data warehouse. The fourth is all of our users. And the fifth is an adversary. And then the sixth is, I don't know, an earthquake. Like that ability to sort of jump between different concepts of like what an actor is and what a system is makes it really easy to specify really complicated properties very concisely. But the consequence is how do you sort of convert your adversary or an earthquake into code? I see, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, I guess w one way to think about it is if we have this progression of getting more and more abstract, high-level specification E languages that compile yeah. down. So we, we ha we're like kind of plotting along, getting more and more abstract. Mm -hmm. And then Leslie Lamport was like, you know what? Like, you guys keep doing that, and eventually you'll, you'll get to something like TLA+, but I'm just going to go ahead and jump all the way over to TLA+, and make this, and it, and it won't connect to that pipeline, but it'll just be in its own little world to help you reason about those other things. Um, I'd say yes with two caveats. Um, Leslie Lamport wasn't the first person to do this. Um, I believe, and I can't remember who did this, but this, but like one that was definitely much earlier is this one called Zed. Um, and actually TLA plus was in part a way of trying to write like a specification language that was simpler than something like Zed, as was Alloy. Um, and okay. two, I, I, I sort of name dropped this a couple of times, but there's this concept called refinement, which basically involves taking a spec and then writing a more fleshed out, more complicated spec that matches it. And then you keep doing that until you get to a point where like you're basically at code and then you just translate that to code. That's a concept called refinement. And it's also something you can do, but going from a really high level spec, refining it all the way down to like implemented code is really, really hard. It's basically just as hard as like proving code correct in the first place. I see. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, well. Th thanks. Thanks for doing it again. Even though we yeah. kind of already talked about that, I felt like uh, I, I got more out of it the second time. I mean, I, I will be honest. The way I'm sort of saying it, and like us talking about this multiple times, is every single time we talk about this, it is evidence to me that I'm not explaining it well enough. Like, uh, so one of the really fundamental challenges about this space, and the reason I write so much on it, is that we've not done a really good job of both explaining what it is to people and teaching it to people. Like, I'm, have you tried looking at any sort of about any of the documentation about formal methods? Yeah, that's what I spent today doing to prepare. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not that accessible outside of this discipline, right? Your stuff was pretty good, actually. Yeah, thank. Th first of all, thank you a lot. Um, second, that's where I sort of like why why I write so much because I think that it's both we don't do a good job of explaining it, but also it's a hard thing to explain. So that's why I sort of care so much about explaining it well, and that's why every time like we come back to this in this podcast of like you have like a question like, wait, you don't understand this one thing. I'm just taking notes here being like, okay, how do I explain that thing better? How do I make this more intuitive? How do I be clear about the difference between A and B? So it's not, you should not be the one apologizing or I should be the one apologizing for explaining it poorly in the first place. Um, well, anyways, uh, <laughs> thanks for, for that. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that you're so um, concerned with the, uh, the reader. It, it, it shows you have mm -hmm. a lot of empathy for for your students, you're, you're a true mm -hmm. teacher. Yep. Um, okay, so I, um, there's one topic that's kind of a meta topic that I wanna switch to. Um, Go that for I it. I wanna give you an opportunity. Okay, you, you, is there any, anything else you wanna say about TLA plus or um, formal methods before we jump there? Um, it's cool, I think it's really cool. It's not a panacea, nothing is, but it's cool. I think it's interesting. I think it's useful. I think it's powerful. Um, most people will probably 
get as much benefit out of like exercise and getting adequate sleep than about using any sort of tool, no matter what it is in programming. That's my personal stance. Wait, so you're saying that if you don't get, do exercise and get good enough sleep and you don't know formal methods, you, you should first get exercising and get enough sleep and then do formal methods? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Just, just making sure we have our priorities straight. Uh, I say okay. this as a person who's permanently sleep deprived. I do not, I do not practice what I preach here. Oh, okay. That's it. That's good to know too. Yeah. Um, well, I guess so. So speaking about practicing and preaching my, the, the, the topic that I want to talk about next is, um, related to a really fun Twitter exchange you and I had uh, mm -hmm. recently. Yep. You, you know where I'm getting going? I think I know where you're going about this. So, uh, do you want, so do you want to explain? This... I think you can explain. I, you can explain. I think it's better than I could. Well, I'll explain my part, and then you, you'll explain mm -hmm. your part. So I, I wrote this 19-tweet um, rant about um, the comprehensibility of software and how um, when you have millions of lines of code, nobody can understand all of the code, particularly because of the way code is written, and uh, it's, yeah. it's scary. That, that was kind of the, mm -hmm. the thesis. And it, in there, like maybe number 12 or something of my tweets, I made an analogy to how this is much worse than in uh, other kinds of engineering, such as building bridges, where it's much, there aren't 12 million lines of code, and so it's, it's other people could understand via the specification how things work. Mm -hmm. And so then um, Hillel s saw this, and, and, and that one tweet in particular, the comparison to architecture, uh, you kind of ran with it. So maybe, maybe you take off the story from there. So what I did, at that point, what I did was, um, so, I'll explain why that kind of like was the one that I reacted to, but it, but basically I'm like, wait a minute. So you're basically at this tweet about how you're like, well, in like, say like in bridge building, if sort of every single person left, they solve all these blueprints and all these like construction plans, they know where like a new group could come in and basically start where the old group left off. And what I ended up writing was like, I'm not yeah. sure. I, yeah. And so I just, yeah, I, thanks for specifying that out because I think yeah. just to continue specifying out my original point, um, I was talking about how in software, or I was alluding to how in software, the word legacy is like this bad word. Nobody likes legacy code. Nobody likes to interact with old code that nobody else can explain to them. Basically, I was arguing that um, in software, most of the, the knowledge of how something works is stored in the people's heads, and it's not actually in the code. And so if all the people die or leave, and someone else is forced to, like a new team is forced to understand a million lines of code, it's going to take forever. It's like uh, it's they're all, they almost have to start over from scratch, or like nobody's going to want to touch it because it's just so scary. And so I, I, I thought, or I asserted, but uh, I think I, I, I think you, you helped show me I was wrong that it's better in other kinds of engineering. Right. So basically, what happened was I responded to that, and I was like, I'm not sure this is the case. I don't like I'm not an engineer. I'm not like an architect. I don't know how it is in other engineering fields. So, and then I'm like, I'm, what it looks like to me is that it's probably very similar to how it is in programming, where so much is in people's heads, and what's not is basically thousands of pages of documentation. And I'm like, does anybody else, like, know this who's, like, done both? And one thing, if there's one thing I'm really good at, it's getting people who are really cool to follow me on Twitter. That's, like, my main skill more than anything else that I think is, like, valuable to me. And I've just got, like, a lot of really great Twitter followers, and... Um, a lot of them turns out to have been both people who have done programming and done architecture, like as arch professional architects and professional software engineers. And they're all like, yeah, they're about the same. Like they're both equally terrible at like 
restoring the stuff. And then it basically got into this thing where like just a bunch of like engineers from different fields were just like chatting about how terrible documentation and like legacy projects were in their fields. Mm. Yep. Well, so um, the, the conclusion that I took, which again, this could be wrong, but the conclusion I took um, was that potentially the reason why uh, it appears to me that software is so much worse than other fields or, mm-hmm. well, you know, like you, I don't know anything about architecture, but um, why software is, seems so bad just in general to me, knowing nothing about other fields, I, I think is an uncanny valley problem. Uh, and, the, the, and the uncanny valley is um, that when you have graphics that aren't supposed to look like reality, there's no problem. But the closer there's like an uncanny valley where if you get graphics that look really almost lifelike, then they look really bad because you, uh, your point of reference is uh, the difference as opposed to um, there's no, mm-hmm. not having a point of reference. So my, my new thesis is that programming is so good or not quite so good or has the potential to be so good that, um, that all of the places in which it's not good uh, are like glaringly obvious. And so mm-hmm. just to, to spell that out, one of the, the, your amazing followers um, commented about how... Um, in architecture, observability is way worse than in software. For example, we take pipes and we put them behind walls where you can't see what's going on. If you want to see, you have to like break down a wall and then you have to do all this work to repair it. And in software, you know, Brett Victor will complain about how we don't have observability and you have to like run the code with console.log statements. And that's a million times better than having to break down a wall. So, yeah. so my, my thought is that, but, but then of course we can do way better than console.log statements. And so, and it's kind of obvious how we can do better than console.log statements. Like the imagination is so mm-hmm. much easier when like how to do better than pipes in the walls. I guess it's like putting sensors on all the pipes. It's like less obvious. So maybe mm-hmm. the reason why I complain about why software is so bad is because it's, it seems like the you can see how it could be better. Yeah, exactly. It, do you, do you, does, does that resonate with you more now? I think or it you does. still want to test that? Yeah. I mean, I do want to test that more, but I, I also tend to agree. I tend to also get really frustrated all the time where like how software could be better than it currently is. So I'm really not, I'm really like biased here in your favor. Um, um, I do want to go to the, um, the great theorem prover showdown, because I think that that also has a lot of these meta concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, you'd probably tee that up better than I would. I, I, I just want to start by saying I loved what you did there. Really, Thank you. Uh, fascinating kind of challenge. So I'm actually writing a talk on this because somebody asked me to give a talk on this and I think it would be a lot of fun, but generally, so my general stance is as follows. Let me just sort of tell you my stance that sort of justified this and like why I'm, where I'm coming across on this. But, um, so my general stance is that, well, first of all, at a formal verification level, nobody's really sure what's best. Like, some people do the stuff with like highly procedural stuff for various reasons. Some people do like functional stuff. I know, for example, Liquid Haskell, like one of its major decisions that it made was it actually reduces the amount of stuff you can say it express in it to get deterministic um, solver times, which everybody's like, oh, that's a great idea. Why didn't we think of that? But so basically that's, it's sort of like very fuzzy. And then my opinion is that outside of like formal verification, it's also really fuzzy. And I think that what's the best language is like sort of a like sort of a straw man or a side topic for correctness because i think as as i made the the very strong claim multiple times um which language you use probably has less effect on like your ability to like write correct code than how much sleep you've gotten um 
which is a claim I will bet money on happily. Um, if yeah, okay. we, we had we had a long discussion for people listening to this podcast. We had a long discussion that I think was cut out about like betting money for like what you believe in. But in any case, so one thing that I see a lot that happens a lot is that people sort of have this de facto position that functional is better than imperative, static types is better than dynamic types when it comes to correctness. And I disagree with that for. I, well, I don't disagree with that core idea. Like, I don't know whether it's correct or not. I tend to work primarily in imperative languages and slightly more often dynamic. So obviously I'm biased towards those too. But I firmly believe that we don't necessarily know which is quote unquote better for, for like bugs simply because we haven't done really careful analysis of what we actually mean by that and really careful like studying of that. And most of the studies that we have done are inconclusive. So my position is we don't yet have enough information to really make a decision if a decision is even makeable. Yet at the same time, I see a lot of people making these claims as in like obviously true, like that you're immoral if you use sort of like dynamic typing or that functional is obviously going to be more correct by definition than imperative. So my sort of, and I've often gone to these arguments where I'm like, look at all this amazing stuff people have done with imperative or like dynamic typing. That's correct. And the response is usually, well, it doesn't count for reasons X, Y, and Z. The most common one I hear is that, and the one that kind of triggered this was an argument where I'm like, look at all this amazing stuff people have done with formally verified imperative code. And the response was, if they did functional programming, they wouldn't have needed any of that verification. It would have been obviously correct. So that kind of got my hackles going a bit. And I decided to, after this and a few other similar arguments, some very amiable, some more like aggressive, I decided to basically say, okay, enough was enough. I want to actually have everybody put this to the test. And I wrote the theorem prover showdown, which was literally just saying, hey, it wasn't even supposed to be a theorem prover showdown. It was just to be like, hey, if you really believe functional is going to be ob more obviously correct than like imperative, write these three functions I did imperatively, but also I formally proved them correct with these specific specifications. You have to prove the exact same specifications in your functional code. Um, and it was three relatively simple things. One was left pad. Um, one was getting the unique elements of a list. And one was doing what's called the fulcrum, which is finding the point where you can cut a list in half to minimize the difference between the sum of the left half and the sum of the right half. Minimize the absolute difference, not the raw difference. Yep. Which is itself an interesting question. So, um, so those are the things I posted. I did them in this language called Daphne, which is essentially designed to like allow for like separation logic in like imperative coding, very C sharp like. And it basically got like a bunch of different people coming in. Like some people were sort of trying to argue that while they couldn't do it, here's arguments anyway for why like functional is better than like imperative. Some people were like, hey, let's try. This is going to be easy to do, and then they're like, wait, this is actually really hard to do. Um, some people were like, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't even want to bother doing this. It's too easy to bother doing. And by far the most interesting people, in my opinion, were the people who did, hey, I did it. Here's my solution. Here are my thoughts on this entire thing. Um, which was really cool because a lot of people had like really interesting insights. And we also got like, and this is where it started to turn into a theorem paper showdown when like actual like serious luminaries like Ranjit Jala and like Edwin Brady got on board and started like writing explanations and proofs of their own, in their own like proving languages they invented. And that was really cool to see. Um, it was a lot of fun. I think everybody sort of had a, like a blast with it. I got banned from Twitter like five times, I think for unrelated reasons, but I don't know. Um, and I ended up doing a write-up, which got pretty popular. And it also led to this um, thing that we should probably link called Let's Prove Left Pad, which is a way that people can compare different, for their own education, different like theorem-proving languages, where we just have a bunch of proofs of left pad in different styles. So it's the proofs that you're comparison. It's almost like to do MVC, but for 
to improve. Well, this? well, so 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 the original challenge. So left for the so the original challenge was literally just like, can you do this? It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter like how long it took you. It was just, can you do this in a functional language? Um, and then the last rule left had was one of the things that came out of that as a way of comparing, contrasting the different like theorem prover languages. So sort of like out of my like attempts to be a huge jerk on the internet, um, something useful came out of it, which is kind of impossible on the internet, but happened once. Yeah, it, it is. It is kind of cool that like on a, on a meta note, um, part of what's so uh, fun about this whole story is that like in a series of tweets, you like spawned all of this wonderful internet collaboration about yeah yeah about coding um but i think one uh, what i want part of what i want to talk about is um that i find myself to be mm -hmm. I, like i found the criticisms you made about people who who say that functional programming and purity is just obviously better i, f I find those criticisms to be uh describing me to some extent mm -hmm. and so i'm so I spent a, I spent maybe like an hour today trying to like think through, like if I'm being ideological or in which ways I'm being ideological and how I can better, or and like is it a, a question of I'm just not explaining myself well enough, like mm -hmm. I'm I'm being too dogmatic, or is it that my beliefs actually aren't justified and so I have to like go and do some soul searching and, mm -hmm. and think about what what truly is reality versus you know, uh, religion. So anyways, uh, I so guess one thing I want to clarify, it's fine to it's say thank yeah. you because that oh yeah, welcome. Um, so it's fine to have opinions. It's fine to believe something. Like I'm not saying it's wrong to believe that, say, functional is better than imperative. Um, my my main criticism was more just like people who say that as fact, as like obviously fact, and like getting mad at people who don't believe the same thing. Like I guess it was more of an attack on like dogmatism than like, or I guess rabid dogmatism than like beliefs. I mean, I have beliefs about programming too. I'm not going to like force them on other people, but like I recognize that I've got beliefs too. Yeah, well, I guess part of uh, why this really struck a chord for me, um, or maybe struck a nerve, would probably be the mm -hmm. the, the right way to phrase it, is mm -hmm. um, I, I think I alluded earlier in this conversation to this essay that I wrote, which um, really was trying to be a, not quite a manifesto, but mm -hmm. um, an essay that's trying to explain the benefits of functional programming to people who already kind of like functional programming, this essay was trying to like show them how it could be, you know, uh, it has much wider reach than they thought or it has much more generality mm -hmm. than they thought. So that was kind of the, the purpose of the essay. And I got back um, basically the opposite of, of what you're talking about. Like basically everyone was like, like, wow, you're taking all these FP things to be true when they're clearly not. Um, so anyway, so... It, it just struck me that the like dogmatism or, or basically the communication gulf between between people uh, and like religion and dogmatism. I don't, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where I land at this point, but I just mm -hmm. know that um, it's it's on my mind. So um, um, that's actually a really interesting question. And I'm going to once again refer to history here, if you don't mind. Please. Um, so, have you ever looked at C2? The C2 wiki? Yeah. So, one of the interesting things here is that there's similar, like, equally fervent, like, language wars on the C2 wiki. Like, it happened over the past, like, from, like, 1990 to, like, I think 2010 was when it was most updated. But they were about things like object-oriented versus procedural, or small talk versus not small talk, or lisp versus not lisp. So, 
it's really interesting because it seems like almost every time you get a community that's like different from the mainstream in some way, you get really fervent arguments about which is better. So I don't think it's I don't think it's anything particularly special about imperative versus functional. It's more like between people. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. That it's definitely not yeah. um, specific to just you know. I think it, it, I think it might just be that it, in today's in the air today, like um, functional programming is kind of having its heyday. Um, yeah. But like not everybody's on board with it. So there's that's kind of on everybody's mind. But in the past, yeah, it was like object oriented versus whatever else it had to compete yeah. with. Yeah. So I think and I think like one of the things they also see is that like once you get like a smart community, um, it tends to be a common thing where like people only remember the assholes in a community. <laughs> so like of when course. I sort of think about imperative versus functional, I'm not sort of thinking about the person who's going like I'm not I'm not thinking about the person who's going like um well, I think that this is like better for coding for like these specific reasons and like these here's all these contexts where I think you're going to have this thing with like very careful compare and contrast and like talking about different aspects of functional programming comparing the different aspects of imperative and styling. I'm going to remember the guy who's like imperative programming is immoral and if you do it you're actually a bad person as happened with a lot of the pony arguments. But so and that's one of the reasons I'm also like that's actually one of the reasons I tend to be like so very very careful about what I say about say on um, formal methods because I don't want to be that person who's the asshole who's like convincing everybody that formal methods is full of assholes. Ah, okay. Well, yeah, yeah that, that that makes sense that you you feel like you're kind of a representative for a community and so you you want to be extra careful that you come across as Yeah. And I good. and I think what happens is that like functional functional versus imperative is so heated not because like it's actually that heated of an argument as much as that there's tends to, that there's people on both sides um, who just tend to be huge assholes about it. Well, yeah, th that that's fair. I think one one of the one of my hunches is that um, I think it's related to what you were saying about a small community. When you mm -hmm. have a community of people who all agree with each other, the conversations mm -hmm. of the inner community are very high bandwidth conversations because we don't have to like explain why we believe yeah. a certain thing. We all, we all just have common terms and beliefs. And so mm -hmm. when someone who exists in this wonderful community leaves and then has to talk with someone who's not in that community, I feel like that's, that's where you get into trouble. Mm -hmm. and, and the internet um, is, uh, is ripe for that because it, it both fosters tiny communities and also is totally open and anyone can just stumble into a place where they don't know what the words mean. Yeah, and that's also the reason I tend to obsess over, like, really, really strong and very precise, like, clear arguments because, like, I feel like those are the arguments that are best at convincing people. Like, it's easier to sort of explain to a person why, I say, recursion is good if you talk about walking a file system than if you talk about Fibonacci. Yeah, well, I think you had a really great post about, on your blog, about, um, the, like, different kinds of examples, and there are, like, uh, mm -hmm. examples where you're trying to explain things versus convince people of things. Yeah, I should probably update that post. I, I think that's a really good post for me, actually, because mm -hmm. um, I, I, I was writing a post to explain a concept, and everyone who read it um, was taking was was trying to be was, thought I was trying to convince them, and and they were like, mm -hmm. "This article does not convince me. I am very much not convinced." And I was like, "Yeah, uh, this this like I don't know how to like what should I put in the header to be like." 
don't read this if you already disagree with these things. Read this only if you already agree and want to like understand something new. <laughs> Honestly, just that. That's I'm actually working on this piece about like adversarial modeling and like formal methods and like it's pretty much going saying like, hey, uh, this piece assumes you already know TLA plus pretty well. Like, it's not going to try to convince you that it's a good thing. It's talking to people who already like want to do it. So uh, just letting you know. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. I think then there you go. I I just need a um a disclaimer. Gate, yeah. Yeah. Disclaimer. The top. Yeah. Like you're welcome to read it either way, but like. Uh. Yeah. 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 That's good. Um. Okay. Well, this this was uh very fun. Um. Mm -hmm. Is uh I I like at the end to give my guests an opportunity to pitch or uh, list any ways they want to be interacted with on the internet. Any any things there working on they want help with and anything like that that you want to share now's the time so i guess the first thing is that the easiest way to contact me is i'm on i'm on twitter at hellelegram um we'll probably include that link um and i'm also got a website hellelwayne.com i didn't i'm really lazy about thinking about names so i'm just like you know what that's my name hellelwayne done i got the website um so yeah either of those are great ways to like find or contact me um i if you work for a company that's interested in this stuff i do consulting Okay, actually, yeah, here's one thing to pitch. Um, so one thing I do really enjoy learning about is both really weird software niches and really weird, like, and, like, really interesting aspects of software history. So um, if you end up having one of those two that you're just burning to talk about, feel free to DM me on Twitter. I love getting this stuff. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thanks so much for the, uh, taking the time to do this. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy these conversations, I bet you'd fit right into our online community. You can join our Slack group at futureofcoding.org Slack, where we chat about these topics, share links, feedback, and organize in-person meetups in various cities, New York, London, now San Francisco, Boston, and also Kitchener, Waterloo, and Canada. If you'd like to support these efforts, there are a few ways you can be helpful. I would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for the podcast wherever it is that you listen. If any episode in particular speaks to you, I would encourage you to share it with your friends or on social media. Uh, please tag me if you're sharing it on Twitter at Steve Krause so I can join the conversation. I also accept support directly on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Steve Krause. And as always, I am so thankful for the ultimate form of support, your constructive criticism. So please don't be shy with your advice. Thanks again for listening, and I will catch you on the next episode.